for these people that just raised their hand. Will you join me in praying? Don't just listen to me pray. Let's pray for them. Father, all of the people that are entering classroom this week or maybe this past week for the first time in a while, I pray that you'd be with them, that you'd go before them, that you'd prepare the way for them, that you'd calm all their nerves and their anxieties, all the ways that they might be fearful. I pray that you'd show them that you're trustworthy, that you're faithful before and after them, and that you will always be faithful. And I pray that you'd show us your goodness here in the land of the living. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Now, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Jonah chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. And before we get there, I just want to read this passage from Psalm that, that is where that uh, song comes from. Psalm 27 Verse 13 says this, I believe that I shall look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then it gives this command for those that would be singing, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Some of you are probably waiting for a while now, right? Well, uh, we've been in Jonah. This is fourth week in Jonah. Um, and we're going to be back there in chapter 4 in just a minute. Before we get there, I just want to welcome you to this room. If you're new into this space, I want you to know that we've prayed for you. We've prayed for the people that would enter this room, that they'd be able to receive from God and His Word, and that we as a group of people would be able to respond to it with both faith and repentance. And so we've prayed for you. And if you would like to let us know that you're here, we promise to contact you in a respectful way. You can fill out the, the little card in the seat back in front of you. And drop it in the give boxes to the right and to the left of the doors on your way out. And we'll contact you in a respectful way. A couple things about Jonah, okay? Old Testament prophet in chapter 1, he receives this command from God to go to Nineveh. His political enemies, his na national enemies, and tell them and warn them of God's coming wrath for them. And Jonah rejects God's command. He goes the opposite way. And, and God uh, sends a storm, stops him, sends a fish, swallows him, and then spits him out. And at this point, uh, Jonah has gone and delivered the message to the Ninevites. And this huge revival breaks out in the town. It's what every preacher would wish for except for Jonah. He's exceedingly upset because of this happening. And that's where we pick up uh, this story. God has basically relented from bringing disaster on this town, and Jonah is ticked off about it. He is very, very, very upset. And we're going to see this melancholy uh, prophet work through his relationship with God in prayer, and then God's going to respond to his anger. So if you would, start reading with me in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that, he might be a, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask once again that your word would come alive to us, that you'd show us what you're like, who you are, how you work in the world, and that we would respond with glad hearts, that we'd learn from this anti-hero, Jonah, that we'd learn from his mistakes, that we'd learn from his disgust and anger and despair, and that we would rejoice in your mercy, God. I pray that that would be the result of our time in your word today, specifically rejoicing over those that maybe we don't care much for. And I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we get into this text, I want to ask you a question and just ponder it for a moment. How do you respond when God's plan doesn't align with what your desires are? How do you react? You everybody, anybody ever get angry with what's going down in the world around you? Maybe even get to the point of despair where you're like, there's no point in even living. How do you respond when God doesn't work out the things that you want to work out in a specific way that you'd prefer them to work out? How do you react to that? Now, if you've uh, been alive for more than five minutes, you know that, that life is full of these kinds of disappointments and frustrations. And in this book, we're going to see that, and in this specific passage, we're going to see what our anger reveals about us and what our gladness reveals about us. So much of our character can be determined by the answer to these two questions. What makes us angry and what makes us glad? Those two things. It reveals so much about us. And in this passage, we're going to see what made Jonah very angry and what made him exceedingly glad. And in both of them, we're going to see how God reacts and how he responds. Now, just to recap some major themes that are going into in this book. Uh, first, God's sovereignty. He appoints things to happen. All of creation responds to his voice. The storm, the fish, now the plant, the worm, the wind, the sun. All of these things respond to God's sovereignty in the, in the world. He holds everything together by the word of his power. He controls everything. And we also see man's futility in attempting to run and attempting to avoid God's command and attempting to avoid God's plan for him. It's just futile. And then over and over we see this demonstration of God's mercy and we're going to see some of the same things in Jonah's response to God's mercy today. And as I go through these, these things, I want to ask you again, what makes you angry? What makes you glad? What does your emotions hang on? Our kids... Our success, our failure, our careers, our relationships, our spouse. What does those things, what do those things hang on? So a few things we're going to see. First, Jonah's anger, Jonah's gladness, and then God's response. Let's look first at Jonah's anger, starting in verse 1. He was displeased exceedingly and angry. 
Who was his anger directed at? First, it was directed at God. God had really ticked him off. He did not want God to to relent and show mercy. Why? Because he loved his country. He loved the people that he had come from. He loved his friends. And he knew that Assyria and this specific location would become their demise. He knew that these people were their natural enemies. They were their national enemies. And he did not want God to be merciful to them. He knew who they were, and he knew what they were about, and he knew that they did deserve God's anger. They deserved to be destroyed. He was right in that, but he, did, he wasn't right in anticipating how God would deal with them. He was angry at God. He's asking this question, why do all the good things happen to all these bad people? Anybody ever asked that question? You look around you and you're like, why do these good things keep happening to the people that aren't acting right? The psalmist asks the same question in Psalm 73. He begins to wonder, look, my feet had almost slipped. Because why? Because I started to envy the people that were arrogant. He begins to look at them and he's like, look, they're free from worry. I want you guys to look at Psalm 73. It'll be on the screen. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're looking great. They look great. They don't have worries. Look at verse 5. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. It looks like they're just free. How can this be, Lord? Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. In other words, it seems like things are going really great for the people that have no regard for you. Anybody ever felt that way? If you haven't, like, just look around you. (laughs) Doesn't it seem like good things happen to the wrong people sometimes? That's exactly what Jonah, the root of Jonah's anger. He's looking around going, why is this good thing coming to them? How could this good thing happen to them? Some of you maybe have natural enemies, someone who really hurt you, wounded you, and you're wondering, why does good things keep happening to them? Does God not see what I can see? Like sometimes we presume that we can see other people a lot clearer than God does. And it leads to this place of anger. In Jonah, And this is common throughout the, the scriptures. There's lots of places. The older brother in Luke chapter 15 who says, hey, how come you never threw me a party? This guy's not even doing the right thing and you throw him a party. Jeremiah, when he looks at the sin around him in chapter 12 and he says, how come these bad people are doing all right? He's angry over the good things that happened to someone else. It's another way of saying he covets them. He wishes the good thing didn't come to them. He he wanted all of that for himself. In other words, he wanted to be spiritually greedy with something that he did not earn. He didn't didn't do anything to get it from God. God just had shown him mercy in chapter 2, and he's really happy about it in chapter 2, but now that he's shown it to his enemies, he's not very happy about it. And it exposed some things in Jonah. It exposes where his heart really is. It doesn't just expose his anger, but anger tells a story. You know that? It shows us Places that maybe were selfish. He's self-centered in his prayer. He begins to pour out his prayer to God. Is this not why I, 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 me, my, this is why I left your command. This is why I flee. His prayer to God is just consumed with himself. He's the centerpiece of the story. And look, most of us can't help it, right? We're born into a play that seems like it's about us. Every other person just comes in and out of the scenes, right? We're in every single scene. And somehow we we come to this delusion that that the story that's happening around us is about what we want. 
It revealed his selfishness. It revealed spiritual greed, which I already mentioned. He's totally okay with receiving God's grace in chapter 2, but he's not okay with other people needing God's grace. Look, God's grace is awesome as long as it doesn't cost us anything. Am I right? Like, it is great to sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, as long as we're the only people who have to receive it. But then we start thinking about God's grace towards others and what it might cost us in order to forgive, in order to be selfless, in order to give up our rights, in order to love the way that he loves. That's where we're not as good with God's mercy and grace. When it brings us to inconvenience or trial or sacrifice of our own needs, those are the places where we're going, no, 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 I'm, not, I'm, I'm less okay with your mercy now. When it's just towards me, that's great. Every, have you ever noticed that, that people are really okay with their own need for God's mercy, but they're really frustrated about other people needing God's mercy? Like, you just look around in your family, you can see that. <laughs> and so he's selfish, he's spiritually greedy, and he's presumptuous too. He presumes. The reason that, listen, the reason that he has a strong opinion about what went down is that he thought he had a better idea about what should go down. How presumptuous, right? Like to look at God's uh, providence all around you and say, I've got a better idea, God. Let me, I've been working this out in my head with my wisdom that I've gained over however many years you've been alive. And we go to the, the infinite God of the universe who's existed for all eternity and we're like, hey, I know this might seem presumptuous, but I got a better idea about how things should unfold. Anger has a way of asserting our own superiority over uh, whatever viewpoint has come against our ego or our pride. That's what anger is doing. It's saying, hey, I want you to know that my viewpoint is louder than yours. Even if it doesn't make sense, he's expressing it in anger. And then anger leads from, from this predisposition of presumption to justification of sin. Look at what he says. This is why I went the opposite way. This is why. I didn't like what you were going to do. Anger has a way of doing that. It's saying, hey, this is why I'm angry. Because of you, 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 you. It, it, it justifies his sin. It justifies his rebellion. In his mind, he's going, look, I knew you acted this way, and therefore I ran from you. This is your fault that I ran in the first place, God, because I knew that you would be merciful to the people I hate. It also reveals that his obedience was just skin deep. It was just surface level obedience. Look, it looks like in chapter three, you're like, okay, Lord, what I vowed to you, I'm going to perform. And so he goes and he proclaims the message, but it turns out that his obedience is just surface level obedience. He's obedient without the heart of God towards these people. And there's so many people, especially in the South, especially in this culture, who know this all too well, that they know what it's like to obey God but in their heart, they do not have the heart of God towards those that he's called them to serve and to love. And, and in all those ways, look, I, want, I don't want you to miss this. His anger revealed something about himself. That his obedience that happened in chapter 2, at the end of 2 and into chapter 3, is not because he actually owned the heart of God towards these people. It's just because it looks like his sins had caught him and, and there was no, his running was futile. And so therefore, I guess I'll just go tell him your message, God. You ever been there? <laughs> Where you do obey, but you're, you're hating it every single step of the way. That's what his anger revealed about him. That he is just, he did what God said, but the heart of what God wanted, he did not have. He did not have God's heart in his obedience. So many times our anger reveals ways that we're self-centered, presumptuous. We use it to justify bad behavior. 
He reveals that we can obey without a true heart of submission. All of those things, Jonah's heart is just getting exposed. Look, I can see how so many times my anger is just a complete obsession with myself. This morning I came in and TK was like, hey, I just don't know about anger. I don't, I don't like struggle with anger. Look, if you're that person, I cannot relate to you, okay? <laughs> like, I know what it means <laughs> to feel frustration. I know what it means to have my own agenda just stomped on, okay? I know what it means. And in his self-centered anger, he sits there just raging towards God, and God asks him just the, the perfect counselor question. I love this question. He looks at him and says, do you do well to be angry? How's this working out for you? How's your anger thing? How's it, how's it panning out? <laughs> you ever heard the whisper of God over your heart? Like, <laughs> is this bringing about what you hoped? Is this little rage monster that's popping up in your heart? Is this like, is this going to bring out what you actually wanted to happen? Two times he asked this question, and he asked it, I would say, with compassion. Look, the Lord looks at us and says, how's this working? Is this going to work out for you? Look, if you struggle with this as some regular response to you feeling invalidated, or overpowered, maybe you've grown addicted to the adrenaline that anger causes in you. Many times anger can come from this feeling like, hey, I'm not in control, and so I'm going to act as if I am. And again, the themes through Jonah, God is sovereign, man is futile. There's so many ways that our anger just bounces up against God's providence and love and mercy, and it just shatters at our feet. Maybe you've struggled to even understand why you're so angry. Those are really good questions to ponder. And you could go into reasons why you get so angry. There's lots of reasons here for Jonah. I don't know what the reasons are for you, but I know this, that, that this is an important question for you to ask. Does it serve you well? Is it working out for you? Because anger typically promises something that it does not have the power to deliver. Maybe it, it gives you this enticement of peace. Like if you could just assert what you want, then you, things would be peaceful. Because you can imagine some path in the future where you're in complete control and it would be better for you. Look, angry, uh, being angry isn't necessarily wrong. You can be angry for the right reasons. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, it says this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. So in, in other words, there's a way to be angry and it be in alignment with what really ticks off God. And, but most of the time, our anger is in alignment with what really ticks us off. So be angry, but don't sin. Don't let it go down in your anger. And then I love this passage. I need it over myself over and over and over again in James chapter 1. It says this, Beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Isn't that a great reality for us just to rehearse in our mind? Hey, this isn't going to produce the righteousness of God. This isn't going to produce the righteousness of God. Whatever I'm frustrated about, if it's not in alignment with God and his temperament and his mercy, and in so many ways I'm out for my own good and not God's glory, and that's ultimately what's revealed about Jonah's anger, that he was out for himself. 
He was out for his own gains instead of God's glory and God's mercy to whoever God would have mercy on. And so this second episode of Jonah's mercy starts from this place where God makes him extremely glad and then he takes it away. This is a little object lesson. Next thing we're going to see about Jonah's anger is in Jonah's gladness. Second little scene. Now before I move into this scene, I want to remind you of those two questions. What makes you angry? What makes you happy? Those two things can reveal so much about who you are and where your hope is at. What makes Jonah ticked is in the first part. Now what makes Jonah tick is in this part. He's extremely glad over something temporary that God produces for him. First, he's up on the hill sulking. I can just imagine him looking with his arms crossed and waiting. I bet God's not even going to smote them. <laughs> I just went and told them they got 40 days and it's over. I'm going to look like an idiot going back to them. If God relents, all of the message that I just brought to them is not even true. In all those ways, he's sulking up on the hill. 40 days, time's up, and he's realizing, no, God might actually give them mercy. And he sits there and watches it unfold, waiting, wondering, what's going to happen? Will they heed my warning? And he's so upset because he can see that they do. And he sets up camp. He sets up a little booth. Now, I'm, I'm imagining something like what Bear Grylls sets up, you know, in the middle of the wilderness. Something temporary, just so he's not scorched by the wind and the heat. And he's getting in the shade of this place, and he's sulking and watching and waiting, and God sees him and brings him something to comfort him. He brings him something uh, that's going to, to give him a little bit more comfort than what his energy could make. He appoints this vine to grow up. He appoints a plant in verse 6. He makes it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah's response to this plant is just so revealing. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. He goes from, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead, to, now I feel comfortable, I'm doing great. This is amazing. Like, talk about fickle and melancholy, right? <laughs> I know it all too well. He goes from angry enough to die, and then God gives him this temporary comfort and it looks like maybe God could be cruel, but in this object lesson of the vine, God is teaching him something. He's showing him something about who he is and what he's taking gladness in. Then he appoints a worm, and the plant dies overnight, and he appoints a strong, scorching wind. So Jonah's even more uncomfortable than he was in the beginning, and, and he gets angry again. He's like, just take my life. Let it be over. Most people who think that Jonah is like a kid's story for like little kids, this is a grown-up story with really complex characters including God himself, who would give him something and then take it away. This is really complex, that he's asking for his life to be taken from him because he's temporarily uncomfortable with the situation. You really want to upset a, a childish prophet, give them something they didn't earn, that they couldn't have made on their own, and then take it away, and that's what happens. Okay? He goes from exceedingly glad to he's ready to die again, and first, I want, to, I want to zoom in on this one part, that he gives him comfort in this moment. And each of these things, we once again see God's sovereignty, his ability to save, to give, to take away, to make things even worse than how they are right now. Ultimately, God writes our story. That's what we just sang about, right? And it feels great to sing about it in here, but let's just wait till you're in the pit, in your middle of the valley. It's great to sing it on the mountain. But God's writing our story when everything feels like it's a loss and he's taken away the very things that we thought, that made me more comfortable. I liked that God. I really like how this person made me feel and you took him away. I really like how this, this job made me feel 
and you took it away. And it's God's goodness, not his cruelty, that would take away something that we'd hope in outside of himself. That's his goodness to us. That's his loving kindness. He'd say, hey, this thing that gave you some kind of temporary comfort, and then he points out where his hope was. Look at the close of this book in verse 10. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God's response. Let's look at God's response to Jonah. He points out first what Jonah is attached to. And this word pity, uh, it, it It doesn't do justice for what he's saying to Jonah. You pity this. You have compassion. You've grown attached to it. You feel the loss of it. That's what he's saying. Saying you've grown attached to this thing. And then he points out not only that his attachment is to this shade tree or this plant that's that's risen. He's saying, look, it was outside of your control. So before you get very, very angry about it, you need to see that this temporary thing, it was outside of your control. It was something that was brought in. You did not labor, nor did you make it grow. You're not responsible for the good things that come to you, in other words. You're not responsible for those. They can be put in your life. They can be taken away. He didn't earn that. He didn't toil over it, but God just gave him this temporary comfort. And then he points out that Jonah's attachment to the plant is indeed temporary. He says, look, One night it's there, next night it's gone. Came into being in a night, next night it's away. So much of our emotional energy is wasted on things that we can't control and that are just temporary. And that's exactly what he's pointing out to Jonah in this story. There's things that are temporary, you cannot control them, you didn't bring them in your life, and you won't bring them out of your life. In other words, you're getting angry over things that you cannot have any effect on You contrast that to the weight of things that God has in his heart for his people and for this, for his, all of creation to behold his glory. And he's saying, look, you're occupied with this. Let me show you what I'm occupied with. A whole city that's going to perish if there's not someone to intervene on their behalf. God ends with this simple question for Jonah. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left? How much of our emotion and attention and energy gets poured out to things that just don't matter? They just don't matter. And God's saying, hey, I'm concerned with these great things, important things. And you're spending your energy on things that are temporary, that you can't control. And should I not pity those that you hate? You're angry at me for having compassion on people when basically you're consumed with your comfort. That's what you're consumed with. Sometimes, in order to see God's goodness and how he's working around us, we have to die to ourselves. Things that we desire about our future, they just have to be crucified. The invitation to follow Christ isn't one to come and be happy and pursue your comfort and to be, look, it's going to be much better, but it might be much harder too. It's it's an invitation to die 
to your desires and to surrender to his. So gratefully, God's desire is to use us to show off his mercy, to declare his goodness that's much stronger than our desire to get our own way and have our own comforts and pursue our own happiness. God's desire to glorify himself is stronger than our appetites for comfort and glory, self-actualization, individual expression. I'm grateful sometimes that we would, we would choose to lose ourselves, but he's saying, no, no, be found by me and be found in me. Come die to yourself. Why wouldn't I show them the same mercy, Jonah, that I've shown you? So his invitation to us is, yes, to come and die, to die to our selfish desires so that we might get the good part so that we can have the thing that God's offering to everyone who would believe. Milton Vincent writes it like this. When my flesh yearns for some prohibited thing, I must die. When called to do something I don't want to do, I must die. When I wish to be selfish and serve no one, I must die. When shattered by the hardships that I despise, I must die. When wanting to cling to wrongs done against me, I must die. I'm going to read that one again. When wanting to cling to the wrongs done against me, I must die. When enticed by allurements of the world, I must die. When wishing to keep besetting sin's secret, I must die. When wants or, or borderline needs are left unmet, I must die. When dreams that are good seem shoved aside, I must die. So Jonah's desire for his own appetites, his own comforts, for his own plan for the future had to die in, in the shadow of God's glory and goodness and mercy because God cares for them. He shows off his mercy. Gratefully, listen, here's what that means. Gratefully, and I'm really grateful. Our worst enemy doesn't get to decide who God's merciful to, okay? Your worst enemy, the person that, that despises you, that you've wronged, that you have a list of people maybe that, that wishes you would not, you would get all of God's justice, Gratefully, God gets to decide who gives mercy to, and he's chosen to give it to all who would believe. So if you're in this room today and you're hearing the message of God's mercy, it's really good news that your worst enemy didn't decide whether or not you would hear this good news. Really good news. Gratefully, also, we don't get to decide who God extends his grace and mercy to. Because it's good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Look at this in, in uh, 1 Timothy it's good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The general disposition of God is that he delights to show mercy. He loves to do that. That's his general disposition towards the world. To rescue us from our own appetites, to rescue us from our sin, from our ignorance when we don't know our right hand from our left. He chooses to step in and rescue us from our own self-destruction. And so I want to leave you with two, two observations in conclusion. The first one is this. It's just a question. Do you do well to be angry? How's it working out for you? Look, there's a lot of things going on in this passage. One of the most convicting and I think relevant is this. Do you do well to be angry? Because the world wants you to be outraged. Every single channel that you turn on, it's saying, hey, be angry. Be upset because the bad people who are not on your side are doing this bad thing. And you flip the channel and this and, and is the exact same message. You guys should be really upset because the bad people who are not on your side should, should be making you upset. So I want to ask you, do you do well to be angry? Some of you have experienced disappointment and disappointment and disappointment again to the degree that you'd say with Jonah, I'm angry enough to die. You can kind of relate to this anti-hero. <laughs> 
And in this question is an answer. It's futile to be angry over such things. It's futile to be angry over things that you can't control. It's futile to be angry over temporary things that are going to be here one day, gone the next. It's temporary. Is your anger aligned with God's over things? Because there are things that make God angry. Just make sure that you're getting, you're getting your anger in alignment with him because that leads to righteousness. The anger of man, it does not lead to righteousness. It doesn't lead to good things. And the last thing I want to say is this. God loves his enemies. <laughs> now, for everybody who knows that they're an enemy, that's really, really, really good news. That God would die for the weak at the right time, Christ for the ungodly. In Romans chapter 5, it says this, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the only way that that is good news is to see that we are enemies of God. That all of us have sinned against him and that he chose while we were still weak, while we were still children of wrath, as it describes in Ephesians, it, he's saying, I came to get you. But God, rich in mercy, great in the love with which he loved us, he showed his mercy towards us. God's mystery of mercy towards us is that you didn't do anything to earn it. There was nothing that you brought to this equation of salvation except for your great need for it. That's all you brought. But if you're not convinced that you're an enemy, you're going to have a little bit of uncomfort when, it, when he starts saving people that you would rather him bring justice on. Now, there's some people who terrible wrongs have happened to you. And I don't want to dismiss that. There is justice for everything that is against God and against humanity. There is justice. And sometimes that, that justice was poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross. For everyone who believes. That means that there's a chance that your greatest enemy might be your welcome party to heaven. Now, can you imagine the martyrs that Paul killed, like being the welcome, <laughs> the welcoming committee for Paul? We're glad you're here, Paul. You took us out, Paul. But here we are together. It changes our mission when we understand that we were enemies. It changes it. It means that one of the ways that we represent Christ in our world is doing what he did, okay? One of the ways that we represent Christ and not this anti-hero Jonah is by taking the person that has left us ticked off and frustrated and saying, I love them because Christ loved me. I don't love them because they're worthy of it. I don't forgive them because they pled with me for forgiveness. I love them because before I even knew who I was and how, how doomed I was, Christ said, you're mine. And he rescued us while we were still enemies. And so we get to have the same mind that Christ had in him who considered himself a servant and he humbled himself. He laid aside his crown and he came and dwelt among us and showed us what this looks like to love your enemies. To pray, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing when the people that were crucifying were spitting on them. Listen, I don't want us to be the kind of people who love God's mercy as long as we're the people who it's benefiting, Okay? But we're not, as, we're not as thrilled about it when it includes our spouse or our kids or our neighbors. C.S. Lewis said, <laughs> Jesus probably commanded us to love our neighbors because they're usually the hardest to love, right? <laughs> I don't want this to be the kind of people who love to receive God's love, but we're, real, we're just real greedy, stingy. 
when it comes to giving it out. Jesus said it like this in Luke chapter 6. I'm really close to finishing, I promise. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Look, you're no different than everybody else. If you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But here's, here's the dynamic of Christ in the world. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful <laughs> and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. That's the invitation of Christ. Resemble me in every way. I've been generous with you, right? He's saying, I've been generous with you. I lent to you what you couldn't pay in return. I gave you your salvation. In the same way, be merciful to those around you. In every way that you got something you didn't deserve, you did not earn, you could not control, that is eternal. It's not just temporary. It's eternal. He gave you something you couldn't afford. He's inviting you to give the same kind of forgiveness and mercy to your enemies. Tim Keller describes it like this. This sin of Jonah, when Christian believers care more for their own interests and security than for the good and salvation of other races and ethnicities, they're sinning like Jonah. If they value the economic and military flourishing of their country over the good of the human race and the furtherance of God's work in the world, they're sinning like Jonah. Their identity is more rooted in their race and nationality than being saved sinners and children of God. Now, in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. It's one of my favorite songs, Rock of Ages. I love this song. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from our wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath, make me pure. Now I want you guys to sing it because it's good news. It's good news that there's nothing in our hands we're bringing. We're just simply clinging to the cross. But, but today, somebody told me this this week, a friend of mine. Sometimes he sings songs and imagines singing it over specific people, okay? He prays those prayers for certain people. Like, I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Instead of just saying that over themselves, they pray it over other people. And so I want to invite you to imagine, as we sing Rock of Ages, the person that you can't stand, okay? I mean, the person that's most difficult for you to love. The person that's most difficult for you to forgive. The person that's most tempting for you to, to hold a grudge against and be bitter. And when we sing Rock of Ages today and we say, Lord, let me hide myself in thee, I want you to pray that for that person. Not just first person. I want you to think about that person and pray it over them. That there would be nothing in their hands they're bringing. That Christ would indeed suffer in their place. And that he would rescue them in the same way he's rescued the likes of us all of us enemies before his grace.